This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 23. It's found on page 258 in the Bibles in your rows. It's also, also printed in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along as I read. 2 Samuel 6, 1 through 23. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. They brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning again. Um, Have you ever had the experience of waiting for something special to arrive? Uh, maybe it was something you ordered from Amazon recently. Uh, my kids get excited whenever they see an Amazon truck in the neighborhood because they think it means like maybe something's coming to our house and it might be really great. Usually it's just like socks or dishwasher tabs or something random. 
But you know that experience of, of waiting, of anticipation, and then joy when it happens. I remember as a kid, uh, every summer when my cousins would come to visit, the, the, the waiting that I would endure, especially on the day that they're supposed to arrive, uh, because I would remember just sitting in my room and time would like drag on. It felt like torture, and I would just wait and wait and wait for them to get there. And finally, they'd pull up in their big pinkish maroon van and it had the, like the 1990s, like pink curtains in it and blinds and you know a ladder on the back, one of those big old vans. They'd pull up and uh, I would jump up and run out the front door and jump and yell and shout because I was so excited to see them. It had been like a year since I'd seen them last. Well, maybe thinking about that helps us to put this morning's passage into its context a little bit as we're continuing through our series, uh, Through the Life of David, because that is what's happening in today's passage from 2 Samuel 6. And honestly, just to just want to acknowledge this, this is, for us modern readers, kind of a strange passage. It's a little weird. Um, Uzzah dies for touching the ark. David is potentially dancing in his undies. Uh, and Michael is really ticked off. So there's a, lot of, there's a lot of stuff happening in this passage. But here's the situation, just to, to set, the, set the scene for us a little bit. 30 years before this morning's passage... Uh, the Ark of the Covenant had been captured by the Philistines, who was the enemy of Israel. And the Ark, uh, they experienced some curses because of this. And the Ark was then returned to Israel. And then for the last three decades, it had kind of hung out in the countryside um, at the house of this, this, this guy. Um, we'll get to his name. I forget his name off the top of my head. But anyway, <laughs> the Ark has hung out in the countryside. And David who is uh, now officially the king of a united Israel, uh, decides that he's going to bring the Ark of the Covenant to the people and to his capital city. Uh, the people have been waiting for this day. David has been waiting for this day. Even the Lord has been waiting for this day. So it's a cause for great celebration. Now you might be asking, uh, what is this Ark thing? And why is it a big deal? Is that, the, is that the boat that had all the animals in the flood? Is it that ark? Um, the answer is no. It's not the same ark, different ark. Um, the word itself just means, our word ark means box or chest. That's from, the, from a Latin word and Hebrew word. And it's a, it's a box that's not made out of cardboard like the ones that come from Amazon, but, but a wooden box that was plated with gold. It was a fancy box, in other words. Uh, it was about four feet by two foot by two foot. So four by two by two. And God had commanded Israel to build this box back in the days of Moses, back in the book of Exodus. And the, the uh, box was carried around by the Israelites as they traveled through the wilderness. And then once they stopped, it was placed in the center of their campground, uh, in the center uh, of a big worship tent that was there called the tabernacle. And inside this box uh, was, it contained some things. It contained the tablet of sto stones of the law that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai. There was a jar full of manna, which was the food that God provided for Israel in the desert. And Aaron's rod, or staff, Aaron's staff, which had grown buds on it and ripe almonds as the sign that God had chosen Aaron and his descendants, the Levites, to be his priests. So, these things reminded Israel that God had commanded them and provided for them and saved them. But this box was more than just a container. It was also God's throne. 
It was the place where the God of the universe, who created all things and spoke all reality into existence, chose to manifest his presence locally on earth to the people. Right? This was his local dwelling place, in other words, for Israel. This was his throne. This is uh, where God would go to meet with the people. This is the, ark of, the lid of the ark, the top of it, you see, uh, had two golden cherubim on it. The whole thing was solid gold. And God, it says in the scriptures, would meet with Israel from between the cherubim. His, in other words, his spirit, his presence uh, would be in that space. And God then would dwell in the midst of the people, in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle. Now, uh, if none of that is familiar to you, just, uh, just think of Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, if you remember that movie. Uh, it's the same box. We're talking about the same box. That's the Lost Ark of the movie. Uh, this is the one that the Nazis were looking for and eventually melted off their faces at the end of the movie. So, if you're struggling... Indian Jones. If you haven't seen that movie, you should see it. My son just watched it for the first time, uh, and it's great. He loved it, especially the ending. Anyway, so in today's passage, God is moving into the neighborhood for the first time in 30 years. Hence, this grand celebration and the parade that David leads. Uh, could you imagine that first? Think about this for a second. Think about being one of the people of Israel. Um, what would it be like to know that the God who created all things and spoke the universe into existence was going to have a throne in the middle of your city? Imagine that uh, God decided he was going to dwell downtown in Fountain Square, right? That he was going to choose that place to be the point that anyone could go and access God, to be in his presence. All you had to do is simply go to the tabernacle, go before the Ark of the Covenant to pray and worship. Can you imagine that? I mean, you think about all the minor things that we celebrate in our culture. Uh, here in this city, we celebrate opening day, the first baseball game of the year, which, you know, it's just a baseball game. I hate to break it to you guys. Uh, it's just a baseball game that happens every year, but we celebrate it with a parade. Uh, we have Norwood Day. We had a parade just this week. The, the, our, our float won first prize. Uh, it's done by the youth group, so way to go, guys. Um, or uh, you think about the Macy's Thanksgiving Parade that happens every year, and it's this big thing, and it's on TV, and it's basically just an advertisement for like Broadway shows and other products and things like that. But you think about all the pomp and circumstance there is for all these things that we have. How much more if the God of the universe was coming to live in your city, to dwell in your city? So God is moving into the neighborhood, and David is helping him move in. And that's the big idea behind this passage. Now, not everyone in this story has the same expectations about what that means and why it matters. I mean, what does it mean to encounter God? And what should be our response when we meet with God? And how does the presence of God call us to respond? I want to ask those questions and see what the text has to tell us about that. And to do that, we're going to, we're going to kind of walk through the story um, from the lens of looking at the three major characters, Uzzah, Michael, and David. So first, Uzzah. Now, I don't know about you, uh, but my heart goes out to Uzzah because, first of all, his name's Uzzah, which is, uh, seems like a really cruel choice by his parents uh, for those of you who are parents, uh, maybe you did the playground test as you were thinking about names. For those of you who are not parents yet, just remember this. This is really helpful. But you think about, uh, okay, as I give my son or daughter a name, will they get made fun of on the playground for this name? 
For example, my kids could never be Peter or Paul because my last name starts with a P, so the initials PP would not work. Um, right? That's, that's what you should do. That's a good test. Also, name does not pass the playground test. And, and, and the name means to show oneself strongly or to defy, which is fitting for this story. It's, it's, in other words, it's not a great name. And he seems to really live up to its meaning because he decides to literally take things into his own hands and it leads to his untimely death. So, who is Uzzah? Well, David had ordered the ark brought from Abinadab's house. That's the guy's name I was looking for, Abinadab. And Uzzah was one of Abinadab's sons. So Uzzah and his brother Ohio uh, were charged with, with leading this and taking, taking leadership over this endeavor. Now, again, these guys aren't oblivious. They're priests, number one. They're of the tribe of Levi. And they've grown up with the ark in their barn or something out back, right? Uh, They know that it's special. They know how God says to treat it in the law. So they should know that God had commanded the ark to be carried with two poles stuck in, in some rings on the side, which is all the pictures we saw had those poles in them. Even Indiana Jones knew that you picked up the ark with the poles, right? So they should have known that. But instead, notice what they do. They build a new ox cart for it, and they plop it up on there. That's mistake number one. It's also how the Philistines treated the ark when they had it in their possession. If you go back and read uh, in the earlier chapters of 1 Samuel, when the Philistines send the ark back to Israel, they plop it up on an ox cart. So... They're doing the same thing the Philistines did, which is kind of a subtle message of like, this is a bad idea, guys. So mistake number one, they put it on a cart. Secondly, God warned Israel not to touch the ark. As I should have known this. Uh, It was holy, and the Bible tells us that human beings tainted by sin are not. In other words, holiness and sinfulness cancel each other out. It's sort of like when bleach comes in the presence of stains, the stain is wiped away. That's the reality. Uh, and God commanded Israel say, for their own safety not to touch the ark. Like if they did, they would die. They knew this. This is kind of par for the course. But other Uzzah either doesn't care or he forgets in the moment, and the oxen stumble, and the ark, ark starts to fall, and he reaches out to stop it from falling. So true to his name, he defies God's commands and reaches out to grab the ark, and he dies immediately. Now, we may think that's unfair. I mean, David did. After all, David's angry about this. But, as I mentioned, God made these rules for human safety. And Uzzah knew the rules. He was a priest. He should have known all these things. Uh, and he chose to think that they didn't apply to him or he didn't have to follow them. Right? He didn't think he, he needed to do these things. His way was faster, probably, more efficient, and easier. Uh, in other words, he just is like, you know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to move this ark the way I think is best. I'm going to do with, what I, do with the ark what I want uh, the way I think is best. His attitude is sort of like, going back to Raiders of the Lost Ark, his attitude is sort of like the Nazis in the movie who want the ark uh, for their own purposes and, and power. Uh, and the result of that was that they melted away at the end. So, general rule of thumb, if you were doing something a Nazi would do, it's not good. Tuck that one away for later. In other words, Uzzah wanted to be in charge of God or he wanted to manage God, or control God. He wanted to put God in a box, literally. And 
Eugene Peterson says in his commentary on this passage, he says, God will not be put and kept in a box, whether the box is constructed of crafted wood or hewn stone or brilliant ideas or fine feelings. In other words, you can't put God in a box. You can't control or manage God. He's God and you're not. And that's a real temptation for us when it comes to encountering God, isn't it? Because we want to dictate the terms. We want to dictate when that should happen, how it should happen, what that experience should be like. That is one of the common temptations of idolatry. Uh, We want to make God into our own image and after our own likeness. We want to control and manage God, don't we? We want to tell God what to do and, and, and how to do things. That is at the heart of ancient idolatry. It's the heart even of modern idolatry and even modern trends of New Age spirituality and witchcraft, which I keep seeing like displays in magazines about witchcraft. This is a thing now, interestingly, in our modern world. But it's, it's, it's the same thing. It's a very old, very common human tendency where we want to manage or control something bigger than us. We want to cobble together a self-made religion. But the Bible and the God of the Bible tells us that uh, his ways are revealed ways. It is revealed religion, right? In other words, picking and choosing aspects to add to your practices or your beliefs is not how God works. It's either, according to God, either all or nothing. It's either obedience or sin and idolatry. And that's Uzzah's mistake. He did it his way. He meets with God on his own terms but it doesn't lead to joy or a deep experience of God. It ultimately leads to his death. So Uzzah is a warning to us not to take God things into our own hands or try to manage or control an encounter with God. Second character, Michael, or Michal. Her, her name is the feminine version of my name, Michael. Um, it means who is like God is, is what her name means. Uh, now, after Uzzah's death, David is rightly pretty upset. He's, he's like, this is not how I planned this to go. Uh, so he stops the procession, procession, and he's also a little terrified probably of having the same fate as Uzzah. He's like, he realized what they're doing is dangerous. It's not just a simple, simple matter of just bringing the box to Jerusalem. And so the ark stays at the house of Obed-Edom for three months, and during this time, Obed's family is blessed. And so David hears about this, that there's blessing, actually, for this family to have the ark in their presence. And he decides, okay, let's, let's give this another shot. We're going to bring this to Jerusalem, uh, because that's pretty great. M- more on this process in a second. But once the ark arrives in the city, one of David's wives, Michael, sees what's going on, and she is full of disgust for her husband and the way he is acting, because David is out front of this procession, dancing and leaping and shouting for joy. Now, uh, my wife usually feels the same way about my dancing. So, uh, some of you may understand that. Uh, and this is why I don't dance up here ever. Uh, but that has more to do with my skill level and my moves, rather than just the, the fact of my dancing. But Michael is embarrassed and disgusted by the impropriety of David's action. David is the king, after all, she thinks. This is not how kings should act. He's even not, not even wearing his kingly robes. He's dancing in the street like a drunkard. She doesn't care what this parade is about. It is undignified. It isn't proper. 
or even in order. Now, Michael would make a great Presbyterian. Uh, For those of you who don't know, this is a Presbyterian church. And uh, you may have noticed that we do things a little differently than other churches that you've been in. Uh, And part of that is because us Presbys like to do things decently and in order. That's biblical. That's a biblical phrase. But we like decently and in order. Uh, We even have a book of church order that guides things. We are known for our theological precision, our intellectual love for the faith, and not showing emotion in worship. You may have noticed that we struggle to clap. Whether that's on beat or clap at all, right? Uh, You may have noticed that maybe there's a little wiggling to the music sometimes, maybe a little shuffling back and forth, but there's definitely no dancing. That doesn't happen. Uh, There is a reason why Presbyterians are jokingly known as the frozen chosen. Michael thinks that that sort of worship that is proper and dignified and ceremonial is the way to act in God's presence. I mean, after all, who's, who's the Lord? Who is like God, right? Uh, one should not enter lightly into his presence. Now, um, you know, our tendency is important. I, I've been in, I've been in uh, some charismatic circles when I was younger, and I've seen excesses. And if I'm honest, I'm definitely on the Michael spectrum when it comes to judging other believers and traditions and how they encounter God. Like, I'm the, I'm the kind of guy that looks at contemporary music, contemporary Christian music, or more charismatic worship and thinks, well, that's a little much, isn't it? But if you follow the logic of this story, it should convict a lot of us because Michael's attitude is not being celebrated at all. And this conversation between David and Michael causes actually a rift in the marriage to the point that Michael never gives birth to any of David's children. God is indeed holy and great. God is indeed totally other. God is indeed beyond our comprehension, and we ought to do things decently and in order and honor him. But that doesn't mean emotions are forbidden. It doesn't mean celebration is forbidden in encountering God. Which brings us to David. Like when you encounter God, when you enter the presence of the Lord, when God moves into the neighborhood, in other words, what should our attitude be like? Well, from this passage, David is clearly, to be our example, David is doing this right, actually. He is the one who's modeling for us what it looks like to be in the presence of the Lord. And you notice he starts with sacrifice, right? He knows he's not worthy. He knows that the people are not worthy. He starts with sacrifice as a substitute for him, his sin, and the people's sin. And possibly he does this every six steps they take. It's not clear from the text, but he says every six steps. After six steps, he sacrifices. So possibly every six six steps, he is offering a sacrifice to God. And he's also taken off his kingly robes and put on the linen ephod uh, that a priest would wear. Um, I, I've heard different interpretations of this passage. Like people, people talk about David being in his underwear. Uh, I don't know where that comes from because it's nowhere in the text. So if you've heard that, story, that, that take on this text, I don't think it's right. Um, he's not in his underwear. But he is wearing, instead of kingly, glorious robes that show who he is, he is wearing a simple linen ephod, which is the priestly garment with the priests of Israel wore. 
In other words, David is, is wearing this to say he is just another guy in this procession. He is just one of the crowd. He is just one more priest in, in, in the nation of Israel, which was a whole kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And yet, David knows that God, the God of the universe chose to be with his people. Right? That God wanted to, to dwell in the midst of them. That he wanted to move into the neighborhood. Even though they weren't worthy. Even though they had rejected God. Even though they were sin and they really blew this whole being God's people thing multiple times through the story. God still wanted to be with them. And so David is overjo- overjoyed that his God's dwelling place is being brought to the capital city. That's why he's dancing. That's why he's leaping. That's why they're shouting. That's why there's all these instruments making, as Psalm 95 says, a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. This is why David wrote in Psalm 1611, in your presence, in your presence, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. David has a lot to celebrate, and so he's actually celebrating it. He's actually throwing a party. He's throwing a parade for God. In this, in this moment. And his, wife, his response to Michael says it all. He says in, in verses 21 and 22, it was before the Lord, he's talking about his dancing, I was doing this before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this and I will be abased in your eyes. In other words, David's saying, I don't care what you think of my worship because I am doing it before the Lord because of what he's done for me, right? David's worship knows no bounds. He is not ashamed of his God or the fact that he's a worshiper of the God of the universe. He knows that he has been chosen and loved by God. Even David's name means beloved. As I mentioned earlier, we celebrate all sorts of mundane things, things that aren't really a big deal in, in, in the grand scheme of things. So, If the creator of the universe says, you are my people, I want to live in your midst, then isn't that a big reason to celebrate? Isn't that something to rejoice about? Well, guess what? This story is really just a pointer to what it is we believe as Christians. This story was just a foretaste of what God had planned to do in time and space and history for not just Israel, but all the world. And the biblical story is this story that tells us that God made the world, he made all of reality, and he wanted to dwell in the midst of his people. He wanted to be with his people. In the early chapters of Genesis, we read that God walked with Adam and Eve in the Garden of the Eden, the Garden of Eden. But as the story of the Bible goes, we read that human beings chose to reject God and his ways, and so we're plunged into darkness and sin. And yet, God wasn't done with us. The story of the Bible tells us that he chose one people in history, that's Israel, to manifest his goodness to all the world. And he charged them with the task of being a kingdom of priests and a holy nation so that all the world might know him. And he said in Exodus 25, 8, let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell in your midst. God's plan from the beginning of time, from the beginning of all creation, was to be with his creatures to be with his people. And that is what's happening in this passage. This is the restoration of God dwelling in the midst of his people. But 
as the story goes on, as you can guess, uh, that wouldn't last. Because in 586 BC, the Babylonians destroyed God's dwelling place. This is much later, almost 500 years after David. Um, but they destroy the, God's dwelling place. This tabernacle had been turned into a temple by David's son. Uh, and all the treasures of the temple and the Ark of the te- Covenant were lost to history and were never found again since. There's rumors that maybe the Ark's somewhere out there, but no one has ever found it. Hence, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? The Ark was lost. And then when the temple was rebuilt in the days of Nehemiah and Ezra, we read about Nehemiah a couple months back. We did a series through that book. Uh, in those days, when they rebuilt the temple, in the space, the Holy of Holies, where the ark was to be kept, it was empty. There was nothing there. It was a reminder that Israel did not have what was supposed to be there. The ark was gone. There was no throne of God for almost 500 years. An empty space. But then, in the first century, early Christians started making this claim. We read about this in the Gospel of John. John says, In the Word, that is the glory of God, the presence of God, the Word through which everything was made, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word in Greek for dwelt among us is this idea of tabernacled, that the word set up his tent of God's presence in our midst. Or as the message paraphrase of the scripture so beautifully puts it, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. This is the claim of the early Christians. God doesn't need a box God has done something greater than a box. God has manifested his presence and glory in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, a first century rabbi. That Jesus was God, not God of the box, but God in the flesh, God incarnate. Jesus was the ark of the new covenant even. He was the prophet, the priest, and the king descended in the flesh from the line of David. And he was a king and priest who was willing to become contemptible in the eyes of all, especially those who thought that they could manage or control God with their dignity and propriety. He, Jesus was so willing to become contemptible that he went to the outcasts, to the unclean, to the tax collectors, to the prostitutes, to the sinners, and he died a contemptible death, as death on the cross. Everything in this passage points us to Jesus. Right? Jesus was the better priest king, like David, who followed God's law perfectly. He was, the better, he was the better sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice, who took our place so that we would not die when we encounter God's holiness like Uzzah. And the author of Hebrews says in chapter 4.16, because of Christ, we, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is why we gather here today on Sunday. This is worth celebrating, to celebrate what God has done for us in Christ. And to be honest, if you're like me, I I struggle a little bit with that reality. Um, I guarantee we've all been to birthday parties that are more celebratory than Sunday worship. Just guessing. Maybe not. 
Some of that is the pressures of secularism, which push against this idea that there is a God, like everything in the air we breathe says there is no God. Just a part of our cultural milieu. But I think also some of it has to do with our own realizations, our own faith, our own beliefs. Because I think a lot of times we don't realize what we have, what's been given to us. In 1 Corinthians 3, chapter 16, Paul the Apostle writes, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Do you not know that? God, that, that's God's Holy Spirit. That is the same manifest presence and power that dwelt between the cherubim and the Ark of the Covenant. That same power and presence of God, the Bible tells us, has been poured out upon you and me individually. Right? In other words, if you are a follower of Christ, God's Spirit dwells in you. You are, in some ways, an Ark of the Covenant. You and I are temples of God's spirit. Uh, in our very nature, if I'm, a, if I'm a follower of Christ, wherever I go, I take God with me. I am, in some ways, the local dwelling place of God wherever I go. Wherever I go, God is moving into the neighborhood, which is, should cause us to be in awe and scare us a little bit, actually, because I have to think, wait, do I actually, do I live that way uh, in front of other people? I don't know. It's also a warning against pursuing sin, right? Do I really want to take God with me into whatever it is I'm doing? But you and I are now the local dwelling place of God, wherever we go. And so one of our callings, this passage makes us think we need to think about, is to first of all reflect on what is ours. We think about how much joy David had, right, before the ark. How much more joy ought we to have, uh, when we think about God's presence within us, when I get up in the morning to think about, Lord, you're with me. Maybe I need to dance and leap out of bed. That could be one, one thing. But also when we come to worship, right, to celebrate with joy what God has done for us. I had a, I had a pastor friend and mentor who once was talking about worship, and he said, if you believe in grace, show it on your face. Just get it. Rhymes, so that's helpful. But if you believe in grace, show it on your face. In other words, it's okay to smile. It's okay to clap. It's okay to raise your hands. When a song says raise your hands, feel free to do that. It's okay. It's not a metaphor. Like it's meant to be taken literally. Go for it. We will not shame you or judge you. Um, but what does it look like to know what is ours, to know what God has done for us, to be aware of that, and to worship like it's true? Eugene Peterson writes, we are never holy ourselves until we're open before God, attending to the reality of God, responding to the action of God in us, receiving the word of God for us. Worship is the strategy by which we interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves and attend to the presence of God. Worship, and that last line is so important, worship is a strategy by which we attend to the presence of God. Or St. Irenaeus put it another way. He's talking about the glory of God as a, as a human being fully alive. He says, the glory of God gives life. This is second century. The glory of God gives life. He says, those who see God receive life. It is impossible to live without life, and the actualization of life comes from participation in God. While participation in God is to see God and to enjoy his goodness. In other words, Irenaeus says, if you want life, worship. 
no God. So, with that in mind, let us worship like David, knowing that in God's presence there is fullness of joy. Let's celebrate that God is with us, God is for us, God wants us to be a taste of his presence wherever we go. And in a world where God feels far off, the gospel says, oh no, no, he is nearer to you than you can ever dream or imagine. So let's pray and let's celebrate the good gifts God has given to us through his son, Jesus Christ. Please join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, almighty God, Father, Holy Spirit, triune God, the God who spoke all reality into existence and yet chooses to be with us. Lord, we confess that so often we uh, are like Uzzah or Michael. Uh, we forget what is ours. We act like you're just some idea or philosophy that makes life better, and we forget the reality that you are present with us. God, help us to worship you, and to know you, and to live as your people, to live as your presence wherever you call us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.